Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 244th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Shannon McLay. Shannon is the founder of The Financial Gym, which offers financial coaching services on a monthly subscription basis to about 3,500 millennial and Gen Z clients. What's unique about Shannon, though, is that while her coaches, or trainers as she calls them, offer traditional financial planning services around budgeting, saving, debt management, and financial literacy, she brands her offering as helping people get financially fit in the same way that a personal trainer helps someone get physically fit. In this episode, we talk in depth about the germination of Shannon's financial gym business model, including the aha moment while she was a financial advisor at Merrill Lynch and realized that helping her pro bono clients change the trajectory of their financial lives gave her far more personal satisfaction than serving her high net worth clients. How while Shannon freely points out that she didn't know the first thing about starting or running a business, the idea that she could massively help underserved segments of the population literally kept her awake at night. And how even though that Shannon received pushback from initial investors who didn't think she could possibly scale the business because she wouldn't be able to replicate herself, she was quick to point out that wirehouses have been replicating traditional financial advisors regardless of their background for decades. We also talk about the financial gym's coaching process when delivering advice to clients, including how Shannon's trainers really focus in on their clients' spending habits, pointing out that while investing $1,000 might provide someone $50 of growth, Her trainers can double or triple that value by helping clients find ways to reduce their spending. How after helping clients define what financial independence looks like for them, Shannon and her trainers focus beyond what they need to save to get there and also on what they need to earn as well. And why Shannon feels that an added benefit of the monthly subscription model is that it places accountability on her trainers who have to prove their value to clients who see that financial gym charge on their bank statement every month. And be certain to listen to the end, where Shannon shares why she ditched an off-the-shelf software package to develop their own proprietary budgeting and reporting tool for clients, as well as the important lessons they learned along the way in building their own software for clients. How Shannon has been able to build such a diverse and inclusive team of trainers and support staff for a diverse client base who often want to work with people with whom they can relate. And how even though Shannon has experienced some difficult moments in her journey as an entrepreneur, including just barely making payroll on a few equations, she wouldn't go back and do anything differently because of the valuable lessons she's learned along the way. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Shannon McLay. Welcome, Shannon McLay, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here today. I'm really looking forward to the discussion today and 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 just talking about the the advisory business that you've been building over the past few years. In fact, I don't I don't even know if you call it an advisory business or think of it that way. I guess you live at sort of the intersection of advising and coaching. Yes. Working with a a, a much younger type of clientele than what a lot of us typically do as financial advisors, but as just more and more business models are getting out there to provide advice in an ever widening range. I just, I was really excited to have you on the podcast and talk about what it's like when you really take a, 
to me, what's interesting, both a, a much more coaching centric model for a younger clientele, and you try to do it at scale. Because mm-hmm. I know you are in the process trying to build a, a kind of a nationwide network of financial gym locations to do what you do. And I, and I, I think in the the world these days seems to be very built around like, look, if advisory businesses are going to exist, they're, they're sort of very focused service-based businesses. Cause if you're going to go big and scale something, you know, it's all about technology and just you know, putting an app in everybody's hands to do everything. And I feel like you're crossing that path saying, no, no, we, we can do advice and coaching and scale it and have reach and help a lot of people who are not traditionally helped. And so I'm just excited to hear how that's been going because I know you've been <laughs> you've been doing it for a few years. A, a wee little pandemic got in the way in the middle, and so I'm excited just to hear like what it looks like when you start trying to build advising and coaching for I guess as our industry calls it next generation clients and try to start scaling it up. Yeah, what do I call it? We call it financial training, and our quote advisors or trainers, but, you know, I came from Merrill Lynch advisory, traditional advisory space. So, you know, I tell people at the end of the day, it's financial planning with some marketing around it. You know, yeah. the, the core of what we do is very aligned with best practices from, you know, the CFP, but with a little bit of nuances to address like our generation, like we call our training program, the certified financial trainer program, CFT, because we do take a lot of traditional planning practices in place, but also with the added education around the behavioral finance component of money that we know that we've seen with coaching clients to success over the last eight years with the nuances of this, you know, different generations, understanding student loan debt, understanding other debt options and the like, understanding financial independence is a concept. So uh, some unique things as well, unique to our business. So I think to get started, can you just just tell us about the business? Just mm-hmm. like, what is the business? What do you do for advisors who are, are not familiar with, with what you've been working on for the past couple of years? Yeah. So, so like I said, I was a financial advisor at Merrill Lynch. I became a financial advisor because it all kind of looked and felt the same. I was working for Bank of America slash Merrill Lynch at the time, and I was working with Merrill Lynch advisors and I needed an advisor. And I thought, you know, they all kind of look and feel the same. And, you know, I thought there could be some diversity and a different kind of way of doing financial advisory. So, and honestly, I wanted to help more women kind of get into the space. So I knew a branch manager, it was a good friend of mine. He was like, I will, you know, hire you. And I was like, great. And then the day he hired me, day before, when he told me I had the job, he was like, hey, you know, I I used a chip on you. So, you know, don't fail me. And I thought he used a chip on me because I negotiated for more of like a bigger base salary. I found out like over a year later, it was because I interviewed with seven people, seven men, and six of them did not want to hire me as an advisor. And he was the only one who did. So that was the chip he used. And the chip he used was, even though she's a woman, let's try it. Yes. Yes. They okay. all said, she's a woman. She can't do it. Was literally the 
feedback. So, and my argument, and I kind of got that feeling in my interviews, you know, I've been in sales for 13 years at this point. I mean, I was like, sales is sales, you know, it's just a different product. And I, and my argument back to them was like, Hey, 85% of this space of my competition are men. So I'm not going to win every deal, but like, I'm going to just be different picking up the phone and calling somebody then. So I'm going to get something. That's my argument. And so six of them didn't buy it. You know, someone out there just doesn't want to work with another dude and will <laughs> call and work for me. Just work with me. Just I'm literally not one of them. Because I'm literally not them. I mean, I don't know how big that market is. I, I literally said that. I don't know how big the market is, but I know there is a market for it. It's not zero and I can call a lot of people. Like it's going to shake loose here. Give me a chance. Something, something. So yeah, it was funny to hear that. And I found out a year later because I was one of the top advisors, new in the advisory class, and they wanted to know how to replicate me. And I was like, well, you know, if you hire me to begin with, that would be great practice. So, you know, I was a financial advisor building my business with the high net worth clients I was supposed to get. You had to have a minimum of 250000 in assets to work with us. And I say this all the time that I laugh that the gym would never exist if I took my Merrill Lynch mentor's advice. And he said, you know, Shannon, pre-screen all your calls. Make sure they have money before you even meet with them because they won't even count as a household, you know, unless they have 250,000 assets. And I remember just thinking, that's the craziest thing ever. Like, I'm not going to ask somebody how much money they have in the bank before we have coffee. That just doesn't feel right to me. So I, you know smiled and nodded. That was a, that was actually one of my prerequisites be, before becoming an advisor. I told my branch manager, I, the one guy who used the chip on me, I said, can I do it as long as I hit my goals? Like I know what my goals are. As long as I hit them, do I have to follow your rules? And he was like, <laughs> he's like, no. I was like, okay. I, I was like, I will hit my goals, but like, I am not going to do 5,000 cold calls in a week. And I'm not going to do that. Like I, there are certain things I'm not going to do. And He was like, yeah, no, as long as you hit your numbers, you know, it's your business to grow. I was like, okay. So I had that in my head a long way. So when I hear this advice of pre-screening my calls, I was like, yeah, not going to take that. So I'm just going to take every meeting. So I took every, so if somebody was like, hey, I need a financial planner. I was like, yeah, let's meet, let's chat. And one of my first meetings was this woman. She was like, you know, I need a financial planner. I was like, great. We're, we're talking. And she was like from a family with money, you know? So I was like, okay. You know, like, like all the signs that felt like it was going to be something. And she was like, I have 250,000 of student loan debt and I make $50,000 a year doing discovery work. So for a law firm, like not the six figure law job, my private law school told me I was going to have. And she went on and on and, and my mind's just kind of racing. I was like, oh, this is, I don't know what the hell to do with this person. You're like, you you lost me at negative 250. Yeah. My minimum is positive 250. Right. You're actually $100,000 <laughs> yeah. short. Yeah, we're a little This off. isn't working well. Yeah. I mean, I heard 250. I was so excited. And then I was like, oh, the wrong side of the equation, 250. Oh, okay. wrong side of the balance sheet. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, and then she says, and I just feel unlovable. Like who would want to marry me with all this debt? Oh, and I remember thinking I I wouldn't want to marry you. So I I get it. I get, but I didn't say that to her. But I I remember thinking because at Merrill Lynch it was like the wealth management tool was what we had that you would do these plans in, and I was like, yeah, she's not going to like what what that wealth management tool produces for her. So I was like, well. 
let me help you. I was like, I can't really open or do anything at Merrill, but I wanted to help her out. So I just started figuring out, taking kind of some of the things that were going on in there, just kind of figuring out how to create some kind of roadmap for her. And then I, you know, started doing that for a few other people. And I, it was like this dirty little secret that I was like helping people with no money on the side and, and bringing in new clients with money. And then, you know, but like doing these little, I called them my pro bono clients. And then I, and then I just went on the path of becoming the worst financial advisor ever because I loved my pro bono clients more than the people with money. It was just more interesting work for me. And I was doing that for a few months and then, then had like the, the Oprah aha, the, the big week of my life that just kind of changed everything. And the week started with a quarterly review with a high net worth couple. They had $1.3 million with invested with me. They were two doctors making six figures and we we're going over their portfolio. It was down 3% because the market, <laughs> and I think any advisor is listening to this can like commiserate. It was down 3%. The market was down six. And, you know, but I'm like having to talk them off the ledge because they're just like, I mean, what are we going to do? How are the kids going to go to college? I mean, where's our money? Blah, blah, blah. And I tell people I spent an hour of my life making them feel better about being a little less rich, you know? And I, I was like, you know, doing all the things we all have had to do in the past to calm people down when, when markets are down. And again, this is like, I've thought in the last few years, oh, I can't even imagine if I had to talk to these people last April. So I was like, okay, talked them off the ledge, walked out of their house. And I thought that was really soul sucking. Like, I don't, is this what my job is as an advisor? Like, it doesn't feel good. And then two days later, I met, I did a plan for a pro bono client and it, it it's literally so much like we do at the gym now. It, it was just a, a word doc and it was bulleted, you know, tasks of what she should do about saving, how much she should be saving, how she should do with the credit cards, the student loans, and, you know, just in plain English. And that was it. And, and I was giving it to her. And at the end of the meeting, she said, you know, you're saving my life, right? And I was like, oh, <laughs> this meeting feels so much better than that mm. meeting. And it literally hit me all at once, Michael. I was like, I need to do something to help people like this, which is the majority of Americans, because every financial institution is trying to go after the small population of people and nobody's trying to help these other people. And it's because the it's inherently flawed is the system. I always say the financial services industry shouldn't be called the financial services industry because the only way they, they provide the services by selling products, it should be the financial products industry. And the problem with this larger population is there's not really a great product other than debt products, which, you know, don't really help you build wealth, but those are like the only products they can really kind of give them to consume. But what I was seeing is the need for an actual service. And, you know, my altruistic side wants to help this population. My capitalistic side was like, I want to take their money because they all wanted to pay me. They all said, I'll pay you to help me with my money. And I was like, I've got to figure out a way to take their money. And the same time I was on a weight loss journey and I'd lost over 50 pounds of weight watchers and working out and a few things. And I remember thinking around the same time, like when I wanted to get physically healthy. I had so many places to go to get physically healthy, so many different things to do to get physically healthy. But if people want to get financially healthy, where do they go? Like, where do I send these pro bono clients to that I can't take here at Merrill, but I can send them there and say, hey, go here. You're going to be in good shape if you go here. 
And I thought, well, if you want to get financially healthy, you go to a financial gym. And it all came to Mm -hmm. me like it was like a lightning bolt. I was like, it's like H&R Block, but fun and cool. Advisors are trainers. They wear jeans and T-shirts. We'll pay a monthly membership fee just like a regular gym. And just like a regular gym, anyone can work out there. And that was eight years ago. (laughs) And I laugh because it's been a long eight years. But I, I saw it very clearly. I was like, this is it started kind of talking to people about it. Everyone thought I was crazy. They're like, no way. And a few people were like, yeah, maybe this makes sense. They're like, well, you know, bootstrap the idea that like, cause I wanted to raise money. I was like, let's get this going. Let's build it out. And they're like, yeah, why don't you bootstrap it? Prove the model first, like prove that people will pay you to help them with their money and then try to raise money. So that was, so eight years ago, 2013, I left actually this July, this month, I left Merrill Lynch to start building what will become the financial gym. I knew nothing about starting a business. (laughs) I knew nothing about what financial training would look like, what to charge, what results I could expect. I knew zero. The only thing I had was that I literally could not sleep at night. I just knew I had to do it. I knew no one else was going to do it. And I had to be the one to do it. So where did it start? Like, what was the, what was the initial like bootstrapped? Okay, off we go. Model out of the gate. Well, you know, it's funny as I thought. I assumed some portion of my Merrill clients would come with me, like pay me, you know, on a quarterly basis to you know monitor them, work on their different things, and one went with me. That was it. Everyone else was like, oh, you're going to look at our expenses? I don't know about that, which is a funny thing about advisory. Everybody, you know, like, oh, I want to show you my assets. Like, that's a great part of it. But I would do all these plans for people. I would give them the goals. I would say, here's your investment portfolio. Here's how about the markets are going to give you over a period of time. And here's what you have to do to save more and get there. And every quarter we'd meet, you know, I'd show them the market returns and they didn't do their part of it. And I was like, what, what happened? And they're like, well, we had this or this happen. And, and I just had this sneaky suspicion, something was going on the expense side, but I couldn't see it, you know? And I was mm-hmm. like, I just feel like something keeps happening. And so that was kind of part of my thesis was looking at all of it. And yeah, they didn't want me to look at all of it. <laughs> so I really only had about one. Because that really wasn't what they signed up for there 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 apparently really was a distinction that they hadn't signed up with you for advice about everything including their spending and expenses they they really just actually wanted you to manage their assets which was which was fine until you went and launched a business to do other things. They were like, oh, we don't actually want to open that door with you. Yeah. We don't really want to go there. And, you know, we hired you to be a magician and outperform the markets and have really smart ideas and, you know, do all these things. And I was like, and that was just not the meaningful work I I wanted to work on. So I only had like one of them. So then it would just became a kind of word of mouth thing. And I didn't put the financial gym concept out there eight years ago because I really was, I gave myself two years. I left Merrill. I gave myself two years until my licenses were about to expire. Ah, uh, the infamous 24 months until yes. your mysterious licenses go away. Yes, that was it. That was what I gave myself. I was like, I got two years to figure this out. And so that was what I had in my mind. And so I didn't want to put the gym concept out there because I was like, well, you know, if this doesn't work out, I don't want this like failed concept. So I called it Next Gen Financial. And that was, you know, what I was testing out. So, you know, just putting the word out there, I launched it on Facebook, you know, my groups, like, 
I imagined that it was going to be a one-year program and that I'd, we'd meet four times. I would do a financial plan and then we'd have three other meetings and then you would be on your way. Like after the one year, you know, have live your best life. And I was looking at charging $500 for the year. And that was what I started out with. And my first client was in a book club with my sister. My sister was saying, oh, you know, my sister's helping people. And so she reached out to me and I told her, here's the, here's what I do. Here's the thing. And she was like, yeah, that's too much money for me. And I don't think I can do that. And I was like, all right, well, that's, that's it. So good luck. And then I wasn't getting any other bites, you know, for like the next few weeks or whatever. And I was like, and I was thinking about it and I was like, well, why can't I create something for her? Like I'm the boss. Like what, what am I saying? There's only one thing, like that's it. So then I created this like Kickstarter program where I said, how about I do a plan for you? It's $250 and then give it to you and I'll check in with you for in a year to see how you did. And that's going to be $250. I threw that out at her and, uh, I was like, we're going to try this other, I was like, here's this new program we're going to try. And she was like, you know what? That makes sense to me. So she did it. And so I did the the plan for her and, and she went on her merry way. And then client two also wanted a Kickstarter. Client two was also in the book club with my sister, which is funny. We ended up having every person in that book club at some point has been a member of the gym and long-term members of the gym. It's funny. You know, we get these pockets of friends. So client two wanted a Kickstarter. And I did one for her. And then she told her boyfriend, client three, about me. And client three started and he was an attorney then. And he was like, I need handholding. So I'm going to do the full year plan because like I need you to ride my ass. I need, you know, accountability. And so I'm going to do the full year plan. So I was like, great. And his first, uh, one of his first goals was to save for an engagement ring for client two. And I was like, oh, this is fun. <laughs> and uh, I was like, I'm glad she did the Kickstarter because I'm not going to see her for a year. Hopefully you get engaged before then. And I don't have to worry about keeping a secret between the two of you. And one of my best favorite emails in the last eight years that I ever got was from her. And the subject was, I said yes. And, and, the, and the email said, we want to meet together with you now and you know, get it all together. And uh, they are still clients. They have been with me eight years. It'll be eight years this October and they are married. They just had their second baby and they've bought a home in London. We're looking at a second home for them. He has changed jobs. She's still at the same one, making more money. And they just invested in the gym actually, because they're now accredited investors and they invest in the gym. So so yeah, it all started with the Kickstarter, <laughs> being open to other potential options, especially when you're the boss. You know, then it kind of just grew from there, but not a lot. It was mostly just word of mouth and things here and there. And then I was doing that and realized I was getting to that two-year mark. And I was like going through everything I own personally because, you know, I had to pay my mortgage and other things. And I was only charging people like $125 every three months. So I was getting to the end of my two years and I was literally did my last withdrawal out of my IRA and I told my then husband, now ex-husband, I was like, I'm literally worth nothing, like nothing. All, I think I had like 250 something thousand dollars in the 401k when I like started and it was all gone. And I was like, I'm worth nothing. Thank God I have life insurance. I mean, I'm literally worth more dead than alive now. And the 
contemplating that a few times, like how well off you and Will would be without me. And I should just go back to work for the bank and make, you know, six figures again. And he's been watching me helping people along the way. And I've had, I had clients for a solid two years. Client number one hit her one year mark and realized she needed more accountability than signed up for like the ongoing support. So like I was getting results, but you know, it wasn't anything substantial. So he was like, no, you're onto something though. I have money left in my IRA. Let's keep it going. And around that time, I'd also met with a woman and I was thinking about going back. I was just going to stop doing what I was doing. So I was at that point now I'm charging a thousand dollars for the year and she wanted to work with me and I was about to leave. So I was like, you know what? It's going to be, it's $2,500 for the year. And she was like, okay, I'll pay that. And so she didn't have the assets, but she had, you know, made good money and with one to pay 2,500. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I've, this is a Merrill Lynch value client because Merrill Lynch wants you to have a client with 250,000 in assets and charge 1% management fees. So that's like $2,500 a year. And I have a Merrill Lynch, like what they design, how they value, but without the assets, I was like, there's something here. And then I had coffee with a former boss of mine and I was telling him about what I was doing and he was, uh, you know, about helping people what I was, and all that. And he had just been let go from Merrill. And so at the end of our conversation, he's like, how do you think I should invest my severance payout? Because I'm going to get this cash payout. How do you think I should invest it? And I was like, well, you know, some in ETFs, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, and then I think you should invest in a small financial services company that's about to run out of money. And he was like, I'm going to do it. So he was my first investor and he invested $100,000 into me and the idea of continuing to build the financial gym brand. So that was 2015. So I never, never got the licenses back, licenses back, Michael. And, you know, they have since expired. And then I just kept going from there. Share with me what that was like. Just very few advisory firms or those of us in the advisory business ever really go a route of raising capital, like of taking outside dollars from someone to invest into their advisory businesses to run, build, scale, grow them. So how did that work? What was the deal? Mm -hmm. How did that get structured? Yeah. Just how did that come about? So it's funny because I always imagined the gym as being something bigger than me. Like I've had times over the years where I'm like, I could just build my own practice, you know, and just take a handful of clients and have a lovely life and lifestyle. But I always saw it as being something bigger than me. I was like, it has to be something. There has to be this bigger thing. So I always felt like there was something more outside of me. And at that two-year mark, when I was talking to Bob, who was my first angel investor, I was like, I figured out what financial training looks like. I figured out the success. And I know I could teach other people how to do it. Like, I know that. And that was what he was investing in, the concept of you know, teaching other, like other people can do this too. And we could service more people in a bigger market. So the way it was structured was just a. it was literally, I had like, I did a partnership agreement on, I got some software online, like legaldocuments.com or something like that. And it was like a partnership agreement between he and I, and it was like a 50, 50 partnership agreements where he put in the hundred thousand dollars. And then I had, you know, whatever I had from it. And it was just between the two of us and that was it. And he was 
he's truly the greatest angel investor because, you know, he was like, I don't really want to know how the business is going. This is money I was going to take to Atlantic City anyway. So just, you know, good luck kind of thing. <laughs> I was like, so basically he, he actually mentally accounted for you in the gambling bucket. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was about as safe as a trip to Atlantic city, which it's totally fair. I totally was. I mean, I think Atlantic city, at least, at least you get free drinks. I mean, I didn't have that much going for me at the time. So that was, he just kind of wrote it off. And then that was when I put the financial gym concept out there and started to really work on raising more money to, cause it was interesting. Once I put the financial gym concept out there, I was getting more and more clients because people, I was going on podcasts and talking about the gym and the gym concept and the monthly fee and, and people got the concept of a gym, you know, like once I started, once I changed my name from next gen financial to financial gym, people got it. Like people didn't know what next gen financial was, but you say financial gym and like, Oh yeah. Okay. Like, yeah, I need a place to work out my money. So ironically, like you, you, you were slow launching the name because you were afraid it would look strange if it didn't work and you had to go back to, to where you were. But the problem was actually holding back on the name probably held back the growth in the first place because it actually was the right name. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and to this day, if you look at my LinkedIn, people are like, oh, so what were you doing? You were somewhere else before Financial Gym. I was like, no, that was Financial Gym work. It's just a different name. But so those clients, those early clients were client, they have contracts with Next Gen Financial that has since been assumed by Financial Gym. But yeah, so then I started, you know, then it started growing more and I was like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to raise more money. I want to hire somebody. We should have a physical location. I was saw the physical location. I was in a WeWork at the time and I was like, you know, people were coming in, but I was like, it's still money, still very personal. And I was like, I, I want it to be like a safe space. And, and so I tried to raise money. Then I, I found the person that I wanted to hire, my first trainer. And I was like, you know, I'm ready to hire her and do the thing. Nobody would give me money again because a number of the investors I talked to were like, well, you're great. Like, and these results are phenomenal, what you've done with people, but you can't replicate you. So, you know, we're not, we're a pass. And I was like, I can't replicate me. I was like, first of all, Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley UBS, they, they pop out advisors all the time. And that's not, that's not necessarily quality. You know, it's like they're replicating something. And I'm like, I think I could replicate, I think I could do something better than that. And, and I know how to do it better than that. And there was not a high degree of confidence in that. And I said, you know, what they're looking for is our people. I literally was in an advisor training program with, I met two different guys who both sold cars as a previous job before he became, they became Merrill Lynch financial advisors. So I always love when people say, well, what were your trainers doing before they were trainers? I'm like, ask an advisor what they were doing before they were an advisor. Okay. I literally worked with two people who were car salesmen and because that's what Merrill Lynch values in an advisor, somebody who can sell anything. And I said, I am not looking for that. I'm looking for somebody who's got compassion and empathy, wants to help people and an interest in personal finance because I could teach anybody what an ETF is or about mutual funds. I can't teach compassion and empathy when somebody's crying because they don't want to open up their credit card statement or, you know, they're scared to look at their student loans or they, you know, are scared to open their first investment account. I can't teach that. I could teach the rest. That's easy. So yeah, couldn't raise the money. So I went back to Bob and I asked him for more money and he gave me another $200,000 and I hired Bridget, our first trainer. And I said to her, I was like, look, I don't know. I can't promise you anything. 
I can get you a year. You know, I think we should be able to, we should be fine for a year. And then after that, all bets are off. I haven't, I said, you'll at least have startup experience for a year and you should be able to do any number of things. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do in a year if this doesn't work out. I mean, (laughs) I'm going to be like, I don't even know. So that was my promise her. She started and she is celebrating her five-year anniversary at the gym next month. So I, I guess two questions. One, just what was the business model at this point? Because it sounded like, I mean, you gone everywhere from $250 Kickstarters to like the person who you threw out $2,500 a year mm-hmm. and they actually said yes. So mm-hmm. like, wh- what was the business model at this point? What, what were you charging? What were you doing? It was three different plans now at this point. So there was the Kickstarter that we, we still have to this day. It's just $350 now. And then we have the core model, which is $85 a month. And we were charging that for individuals and couples. And then we were charging $250 a month for like higher net worth, higher, you know, income earner clients. So those were like the three plans all in a monthly. We, now at this point, we're all, everybody's on a monthly payment option. What did people get for these? Like, what did you get for the Kickstarter? What were you getting for $85 a month core? What were you getting for, you know, 250 a month high income premium? All the plans are, you get a financial plan based off of, you know, our, our model, which back then it was like, it was done in a word document with, you know, updating things, you know, numbers manually and all that kind of stuff. And it was a, a plan with the roadmap. And then we have a site we call training zone. At the time we were white labeling a product that essentially just did, it was kind of like mint.com. So we could track their expenses and, you know, and do quarterly reviews based on that. So it was the plan, the, the access to the the technology where we would track your expenses. Then we meet quarterly and you get quarterly, you have access, you know, at any time, to ask questions and things like that, like kind of your, you know, on call person, but we would meet, we were formally meeting quarterly for the people who are paying the monthly fee. We're formally meeting. It's really the monthly fee was just a way to balance out the expenses and not charge, you know, for, to, for a full year. Not necessarily a, we're going to meet with you every month, just a, you know, it'll be easy for you to pay every month because it fits your budget, but yes. we're going to meet quarterly and, and you'll have access to the training zone and, yes. and all the other piece that go with it. And I'm struck that relative to traditional advisor world, you're not using planning software, you're doing plans in a Word doc, and your software is not like retirement projection tools, it's cash flow tracking tools. Yes, yes. And I looked at a lot of different planning tools, like when I was deciding on what to use, and the site we were using had those options, but I was more interested in the expense side of it, especially for our target demo because I would always say, like, I would look at it and I would say, and I tell clients, I'm like, you know, if you give me a thousand dollars to invest for you over a period of time, I'm going to, you know, it's going to earn somewhere around six to 7%. The markets are going to do that. I mean, you know, on let's just say like conservatively six, 7%. So on a thousand dollars, that's 60 to 70 bucks a year that I can get for you investing it. But if I can help you save 
you know, $100 a year or $200, that's a 10% return or 20% return. Like that's significant. Like that's what I was seeing with, with the work I was doing in those first two years. I was like, investments are great and everybody should do that. But like, there is something at the core missing on the spending side of this that, that could be truly transformative to your financial profile if you just focused on it. So I was like more interested in the, let me save you a hundred bucks versus let me invest and make you 60. So I was trying, when I was looking for software opportunities, I was looking for ones that could help me, you know, pinpoint and identify those. And that was use. What did you end up using? Like what was the software of choice just to be able to do that collaboratively with, with the folks you were working with? I think it was called Balance. And the funny thing is, so funny story about that. I think it was called Balance, Balance Financial. And I was, you know, paying for whatever users were doing. They could input their information. I could see it and generate these reports, these spending reports. And it was really a great tool. And then we were about like a year into using that. And we get this email like out of the blue Balance Financial was acquired by Tax Act and Tax Act is no longer going to support this tool. And I was like, what the hell? So basically the Balance Financial people got aqua hired by the Tax Act folks to make something for Tax Act who just wanted the people and not the software. So fare thee well software. Yep. yep. Have a nice life. And we're going to stop supporting it in like two months. And I was like, okay. And at this point we had like, I don't know, like 70 or hundred clients. And I was like, oh, great. So what are we going to do? And I knew nothing about technology. We were like, do we white label again? But then we didn't want to white label again and be in the same predicament. So then we looked at building our own thing. We built our own thing. It was a disaster, an absolute disaster. And it was probably like a $40,000 issue. And Bridget was, that was kind of her project. One of those like... The, the dev shops that reach out and say, for, for just thirty to $50,000, we'll build you any piece of software you want. Yep. Yeah. And we were like, oh, you know, it was like cost effective. We knew nothing about it. We had no advisors at the time. It was just she and I kind of, you know, looking at some things. And so, you know, we met with them and person, you know, it just seemed like great fit. So they build the thing and it was like sort of functional. It was functional. It was a very clunky thing and there was a lot of challenges with it. So I was like, so we did that and was, and Bridget was the one who was primary point person on building it out. And I remember one day she was just like yelling at the developers and I was like, Bridget doesn't yell. Like, wow, this, is like, <laughs> this, this really bad. can't be going well. Yeah. I was like, this is bad. So I, I, a couple of things I'm wondering about here. One, just, I guess, even in retrospect, what did you not know or miss about picking and hiring the, the dev shop that the first time you end up with one that was a disaster, but now you've got something you're happy with that's powering the business? So we knew nothing about languages, the different types of languages that you could use to build technology on. So there's, you know, two predominant languages, Ruby on Rails and Python. We had no idea, you know, there's different, there's a lot of different languages and different platforms because we have, we've further built out our technology. But, you know, lesson learned was like, if you hire somebody who doesn't build in a language that other people know, then you can't really make changes to it because nobody understands language. So, you know, picking something that is language. And I'd say, you know, so th that and the lowest cost isn't always the best. 
speaking to more people about it, not being afraid of doing it in small pieces. There's, there's just a lot of lessons learned there. And actually really having, just as this is with anything, it's something, an area you don't know, like finding a trusted advisor who has that knowledge or can guide you. So our investor connected us with, you know, our tech who became our tech guru that we learned a lot from, but you know, having that trusted advisor, especially in an area that is very unfamiliar with you. And tech is that for me. It has been a bane of my existence <laughs> since the beginning of this. So, but a necessary evil for us to help with our clients. But I'm struck that the the ultimate conclusion was now now that we've got tech that's working for us, it's 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 a big part of what's making the business work. So can you can you talk a little bit more about just what is what does the tech do at this point? Like, what is it that your that your tech does that no one else's industry tech does that makes it so effective for serving clients under this model? Yeah. Well, you know what's funny is when we had balance, we could see when clients would log in and see their information. So clients could see their progress and track their progress and log in all the time. And what we noticed was clients would only log in right before a quarterly review. And that was to update their accounts, you know, like mm-hmm. to make sure they're refreshed. That was pretty much it. So that was an aha for us of like, clients aren't coming to us because they want the technology. You know, there's plenty of technology and there's great apps and tools that track your spending and do these things, but they're really coming to us because they want to outsource that. They want us to tell them what they're doing. And that's what we do. You know, when we meet quarterly, we're like, hey, you know, you made this this month. Let's just say you made 10,000, you spent 9,000. Your goal was to spend eight and here's where you spent it. And, you know, let's kind of talk through it. And, and then also we update, you know, and go through all their other accounts, like the investment account, what's what, you know, kind of track everything, but that spend report and that awareness of it is a key component to our clients. And it's a way we deliver it too. And so, you know, the, the expense side of the equation is what most people are hiding from everybody, including their financial professionals they're working mm-hmm. with. And it, it is kind of like this dirty little secret. And for us, we're leaning into it and we're like, Hey, we're not giving you these reports. We're not showing this to you in judgment and to mock you or whatever. We just want you to be aware of, you know, how your spending's going. And part of when we first meet with clients in their first session, we ask them, what's important to you? Like, what are your non-negotiables? What do you need to survive and thrive in life that is going to, because we want to budget your life around what you love. So what are your non-negotiables? And at the gym, the top non-negotiables across the board are travel, health and wellness, fur babies, and, you know, family kind of things. Those are like the big ones that pretty consistently come up. And, Meanwhile, we track spending for all of our clients and the top spending areas of all of our clients are Amazon, Seamless Grubhub, back in the day when people were taking Uber's Uber or and some kind of CVS drugstore shopping option, catch all like that. That's where people are spending their money. And there's a mismatch, right? There's a mismatch with how you want to spend your money, how you're actually spending your money. And, and it's helping our clients become aware of that and not to judge them, but we're like, hey, you know you said this was your non-negotiable yet. I mean, you know, you just funded Jeff Bezos going to space. I mean, did you want to do that? Like if you did great, you know, but like, that's probably not what you wanted to do. And so how do we kind of realign how we're doing our spending? And 
the funniest thing is when we do those spend reports, we show clients, they don't even know, you know, they're like, we're like, did you realize you spent $800 last quarter on this? They're like, what? No. You know, and, and you're just like kind of helping them identify it or, or, you know, finding like they're paying for X number of recurring expenses they don't even need, or, you know, you just, you find so much in those reports. So it's actually really helpful for clients to kind of get a grasp of that. So that part of our technology, you know, is the, that's the ongoing kind of tracking progress. Yeah. And just curious, is that, is that like an automated thing? Is this a account aggregation pull in spending from, from connected bank accounts and credit cards? Yep. So we use Plaid as our aggregator and it's very similar to mint.com, except that your trainer sees it and except and unlike mint.com where you have to go in and categorize everything, your trainer does that for you. So you get a full report with all the breakdown of your total household expenses. Oh, interesting. So your trainers are, are manually categorizing whatever just isn't, isn't automatically categorized off the, over the transom from, from Plaid. Yep. The majority gets categorized and it's smart enough to know if you allocate something one month, like it knows where it goes next time. So it doesn't take that much time. Our our training zone 2.0 would take hours for trainers to categorize mm -hmm. that because it wasn't very smart. But th this is like, you know, the bulk go into the right categories. But sometimes, you know, a, a trainer does like a spot scan and you'll say, something in there and you're like, you know, the client, you're like, oh, that should be in this category or whatever, or that category. One of my favorite early clients was, you know, I told her I was going to track her expenses. She's like, okay, well, all of my ATM transactions, that's my pot habit that I buy. I was like, oh, okay. It wasn't legal in the state that she was living in at the time. Do you just tag that under hobbies? I tagged it under recreation. Yeah, I tagged it under recreation. And I said, you know what? I'm not here to judge. You know, we talk about how we're like the backseat driver of our client's road trip. I'm like, I'm not here to judge. I just want to make sure it's your road trip. And I just want to make sure we budgeted for it. So, you know, if that's recreation, then we know X hundred dollars a month goes to recreation. So that's what we do. <laughs> So that's a part of it. And then what we've built out since then is our plan generation technology, which we are no longer on Word Docs <laughs> or Google Docs. And our plan generation technology is like, I, I think it's truly game changing. And I'm not joking. I'm serious. I, I could sell the business on that. It's unique to us and it's game changing because you can literally work with any, it takes our trainers less than 30 minutes to do. Usually they're, they're constructing most of it while they're talking to clients, but it contemplates a whole series of life events in the plan. So our debt categories go from anything to, you know, student loans to family debt to IRS debt, because we know these come up and how we contemplate and deal with those. We acknowledge credit scores and how to you know, based on the inputs of credit scores and, and opportunities or, or challenges for clients there, we literally will guide our clients onto how much they need to make. So 72% are living paycheck to paycheck. That's just because they don't know how much the paycheck should be. So the plan literally will take all their life goals and everything they're looking to accomplish and calculate the income that they should have, they should be earning. So not just what do you need to save, but what do you need to earn so you can go figure out what, ask for your raise or get a promotion or find another job or find another industry or like whatever you have to do to 
get to the earning power it takes to be able to save what you need to save to be able to get to the goals you want to get. Yeah. We literally quantify it. So, you know, and that's where we're like a gym. If you just tell everybody you got to go on the keto diet and not eat bread. I mean, no one's going to go on that, right? No one wants to stay on that diet. So we're like, all right, if you want to do that, here's how we level up. Like either A, you could, here's how you get to your cutting expenses, get to your budget number, or B, if you want all these things to happen, we literally just, a trainer just posted this in our Slack channel this week. Client was making 75,000 and her plan told her she needed to be making 116. And when you tell clients this, you know, people, trainers, sometimes new trainers are like, how are they going to react? I mean, are they going to be like, yeah, if I could make 116, I'd make 116. But the way we we shared is like, look, this is just your number. Like these are your goals. Like these are your wish list items. Like if money was an object, this is what you'd like to accomplish. And here's the number that would take to get you there. And, you know, perhaps that's an option. And so the seven, she was 116 was her number. She just had her first quarter review. She just got a new job. She's making 115,000. She went from 75 to 115. And what happens is clients just don't know. Then they start shifting like, well, maybe I should start looking for jobs in that pay range. Am I qualified for that? We help with salary negotiation, our trainers do. And like, we kind of help shift their goal towards something like that. Or we have clients who are like, yeah, no, I'm going to keep making them. I love my job. You know, I'll just cut expenses. You know, we're like, it's your choice. Your, your road trip. You pick. We give clients financial independence number. We talk a lot about financial independence as an opportunity, especially, you know, because we're working with people in their 20s, 30s and 40s. You know, that was a big challenge I always had at Merrill Lynch that was really struggle for me is that you would get these individuals who were, you know, in their 60s, mid 60s. They've got 250,000, just barely, you know, whatever their number is. And they want to meet with you to talk about retirement. And you do this wealth management plan for them and based off their spending and whatever else the life choices they made to that point, you know, I'd have to tell them they have to work a few more years. Like it's best if they continue to work rather than collect social security because of X, Y, and Z. And it was like telling somebody who just run a marathon that they have five more miles to run. I hated having those meetings. And I said so many times, I'm like, if I could just get somebody at the beginning of the marathon and I'd love to tell them, you know, they're at mile 15 and they're done, you know, like that's what I want to do. And we see that we do that. I've had multiple clients now at this point where I've told them you don't have to work so hard anymore. And they're in their forties and fifties because of the work we've been doing the last seven, eight years. I'm noticing like you're you're not even calling it a retirement number. You're calling it a financial independence number. Yeah. Cause who I, you know, that for me, I never resonated with retirement. You know, I always said, I'm like, I'm never going to retire. So it never was a word that resonated with me. And then we were having this presentation at Merrill Lynch. One of the companies was speaking to us and the, and the guy used the word financial independence. And I was like, that sounds interesting to me. Like that is a better number, you know, and it's the ability to work because you want to work and not because you have to work. And that's more appealing than retirement. So we rarely use the word retire. We don't use words like budget. We don't use like like retirement because, you know, they're just not, they don't get people excited. (laughs) So like I always say budgets are like diets. No one wants to be on one. So we don't really use those words around the gym and we don't really use retirement because it seems like, there's a connotation to it, especially when you're dealing with a younger demographic. It just doesn't sound like something you get excited to make life choices about to get to versus like financial independence or like living however you want to live and and the job and lifestyle you want. That's something that is exciting that you're going to 
not spend so much on Amazon or you're going to like make some smarter choices because that's more exciting than retirement. So what is the, I guess I'm wondering the output or the deliverable of the, of the plan? I mean, do you still end out with kind of a, a thing that looks similar to what a lot of us historically have done in the industry? Like just, there's a, there's a printed plan and some recommendations and some analysis and projection stuff. And just mm-hmm. you, you built your own, your own version of it with your own outputs, but ultimately it's a similar kind of plan, just your version, your outputs, or are you making a, just a totally different thing in the deliverable that the clients get? It's an output that's 70% traditional, 30% non-traditional. Okay. Unique to us. And the more unique to you is the like credit scores, like earnings projections, just that that sort of stuff that the industry historically doesn't done. Yeah. You want to buy a house like we, that the home analysis is there. Student loan analysis is there. So maybe it's more like, 60% traditional, 40%. Not. I haven't seen a traditional plan in so long, Michael. I have no idea. And so ultimately, the the engagement with clients is, is upfront plan that gets ongoing projections, tracking in the training zone, which essentially kind of financial, financial management portal with the account aggregations so they can see and track their spending, and then ongoing quarterly meetings with their advisor, with their trainer to check in and see how they're doing and get feedback. Yeah. And then the secret sauce too is in the quarterly meeting. So I remember when I was at Merrill and guys would say, you know, anyone can do a financial plan. And we tell that to clients, anyone can do a financial plan. Like this is, I mean, there's things unique to our plan, but anyone can give you a plan. But the hardest part is sticking to the plan and actually doing mm-hmm. it and implementing it. That was, I remember all the time hearing that at Merrill and and it's true. And the secret of our sauce is that we are actually holding people accountable to a plan and implementing it and, and tracking it. And what happens is like our clients, when they hit for first quarter reviews, about 50% are hitting their goals. Like they just need to be told what to do. They've put the systems in place, the automatic transfer, you know, they're, they're doing it and they're doing great and you're reaffirming their goals. And that feels great for them. The other 50% are not, but it, part of our secret of our success is like, we find the positives because not everything is negative. Like, so we gave people goals and people feel like they failed because they didn't hit it. But we're like, yeah, I gave you a goal of saving 2000. You didn't, but you saved a thousand and that's something to celebrate. Like you did good. Like, that's a good thing. We're moving in the right direction. And then that's when we, you know, we have the analysis of how they're spending their money and can make some even more practical decision, you know, help uh, you know, things for them. Cause something also happens too. And it happens with every advisor is whenever, whatever people tell you the first meeting is not pure, like a hundred percent accurate. It's like what they think is happening or what's going on or whatever. And what happens is once clients put everything in our portals, like, and I tell them that I'm like, you're just telling me everything day one. I have a good idea about I think what I think is going on, but in three months, I'm going to have a really good idea of what's happening. And I'm going to have some really specific things now to help you with, because now I get a better idea of what's really going on behind the scenes. And we can like drill down to different things and challenges and create like more like exercises, homework, that's going to be more unique to them, even more unique. And so then by Q2, 75% of our clients are hitting their goals. And then by Q3, we're at 90%. And it's like, and when we tell clients, it's like financial health and changing financial behaviors is just like 
physical health, it's, it takes time. I mean, not everybody's going to get results right away. And it is a mindset shift. It is other work and it's going to take time. But by, you know, nine months, we're like really getting strong results from clients. And then people ask me, what about the 10% that don't hit their goals? There are some people who are never going to hit their goals. Yeah. Like they just never are. But, and the trainers, we joke, we're like, why do they keep paying us? And they don't take the advice. And, and it, I think it's like, they just need handholding, you know, and they are just like, this is a support person for the road trip. And th- it seems less scary with somebody in the car with them. Well, and I, I, I dare say if, if a lot of us in the, I'll call it the traditional advisor world actually measured how many clients you like what percentage of your financial plan recommendations are implemented and on track with all, with your clients within nine months of when you get started i actually suspect our average is a lot lower than 90 percent. yeah yeah no it's work michael <laughs> and it, yeah. it, this is where the behavioral finance component that we know and we train trainers on is unique to us as well because we know why and we can get to why some things aren't happening and we kind of, and we have tricks and tools and ways to like get those results from people. But, you know, we have to, because, you know, I say this all the time, we have to prove our worth because they're seeing it on their credit cards or their debit cards statements every month. So we have to earn it every month, what we're doing. So now help me, help me understand this from the business model service perspective. So you, you've got, You've got advisors who are doing this coaching work with with clients. Uh, as you know, you you call them trainers. So, how many clients does a does a trainer serve? How many relationships are they managing? How does that how does that portion of it work to just do the amount of quarterly ongoing work it takes to do the model you're talking about? Yeah, it depends on the trainer, but an average of one fifty to two hundred clients is about what trainers are capable of doing. And what's interesting is in raising money, you know, I had a lot of pushback at different times from people saying, oh, well, working with clients one-on-one individually, it's going to be a lot of work. You know, people are going to require a lot of time, a lot of energy. The reality is most people don't want to look at their money all the time. Like most people don't want to meet with their trainer all the time. What happens is there's, there's work up front with doing the plans and the meetings and getting things and system in place. But then what happens is like, you you do get to a point where you're on autopilot with clients and they'll reach out when they need you. You'll reach out and say it's quarterly review time because, you know, that's their time and they may or may not schedule time, you know, and then the longer they're in the program, you know, the less time they are really utilizing because they're, you know, and then the trainer just becomes like on retainer. Okay. I'm just sort of thinking mathematically. So a $85 a month is about $1,000 a year. So 150 to 200 clients at a time is kind of like a trainer is servicing 150 to $200,000 of, of revenue, which is not, not dramatically different than a lot of, than a lot of advisors. You know, certainly mm-hmm. there are advisory firms serving very high net worth clients that, that have, that have bigger numbers. But when you look across like a lot of large brokerage firms, it's not uncommon to see like a- average revenue per advisor right around two hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and you're just you're you're right in that same space, just a different type of clientele who may be paying an average of a thousand dollars a year. Yep, and some clients pay more. Couples pay one hundred and forty-five. We we've now have a couples pricing, so there's different prices, different revenues trainers can earn, and we've just started an affiliate 
program. So there's other like revenue streams. And then we also work with companies providing financial literacy and education to their employees. So that's another added revenue stream. The business is growing. So there's other things other than the one-on-one client work. And so I guess just, I'm thinking of this from the trainer's end. Like if, if you're going to try to have 150 clients with quarterly meetings, grand, not, not everyone schedules every quarter, but in theory, most of them at, at least may. So if I've got 12 weeks over the quarter, I'm, I'm doing like a dozen meetings a week, mm-hmm. which is a couple meetings a day, but like that's, it's pretty manageable. A lot of us do 10 to 15 meetings a week for clients when we're pretty full on our client base. Yeah. I mean, the best part for our trainers is that also, and that I think any advisor knows, is they don't have to find new clients. The mothership is the one that assigns clients to them. So that's also a benefit they have is they they don't have to worry about new client generation. And so they really just literally get spent all their time servicing their client base because they're not in the, I guess, the, the traditional eat what you kill model. Yep which I always hated at Merrill because <laughs> you know what I saw at Merrill? It was like, it was the guys, you know, the, the, the salesmen out front and, and they would say, you know, they were the ones who the hunter gatherers. And then they were like, Oh, everybody always loves hope. Everyone always loves Susan. And that was their client associate, you know, the, the behind the scenes mm-hmm. person. And I was like, yeah, but they had to get through you to find her. And that doesn't seem fair. And I, said, I've pretty much just created the model of like the client associate model, <laughs> like where, you know, we worry about the hunter gather, but I really just want the people who are going to just take care and develop relationships with clients that want to stay around for a while. So out of curiosity, then just how does this work from a, a job career opportunity perspective for, for trainers at the, the industry's sort of traditional model has hinged around payouts, payouts as a percentage of revenue. Mm-hmm. Are you on a similar kind of model or are trainers all uh, like a flat salary? How does it work? Yeah, they're salaried and then they have the ability as their revenue grows, you know, to increase salary. There's bonus opportunities with different products now that we have and there's different, you know, management type growth opportunities as well or different areas of the business like we're growing like our content area they can move and do other things like that and some just get to a point where you know they're just have their their work of clients and and that's it and, you know and they're they're happy you know they're just doing the training thing if i could just do that all day i mean i still have 50 clients myself i'm like i love the client work it's it's always reaffirming to me if i could do that all day long i would interesting interesting and so can I ask even just like neighborhood uh, of just what kinds of salary opportunities are there in a, in a model like yours? Cause it's, I feel like the industry's view is the, like the, there can't be much money in these jobs because you're not serving affluent clients. So like, what do these opportunities look like in practice? Yeah. So every trainer starts at a $60,000 salary. And what's interesting is that's the starting salary because when I raised that second round of money, I was going to pay myself 70 and I was going to pay Bridget 50 and she negotiated, she wanted to make 70. And I said, well, we both, I can't afford that. So it was like, or, or she went at 80, I think. I don't, can't remember. I was like, well, I can't pay you more than I'm paying myself. So then we both ended up making 60. So that's kind of, so it's a 60,000 plus benefits. So we, we pay for health insurance for the trainers and, that is the starting salary. 
you know, for the first period of time, we, you know, we lose money on them because as they're, you know, ramping up and right. growing the business and we're training them and all that kind of stuff. And then they get to the point where it's like break even and then return. And that's usually about the point we look at like promotions and things like that based on work and revenue and things like that. And I have to ask as well, just, I'm, I was struck even looking at your, just your, your team page of, of advisors, of trainers, you have a much more diverse team yes. than most of the industry. Yes. <laughs> so I just curious for your thoughts. Like you've, you've seen a lot of the industry while well, you experienced some of those challenges in your own interview process and journey, but is this just a, a nature of your company that you're more focused on diversity? Is there something about the, just the nature of the model and what you're doing that you're attracting different kinds of advisors? We intentionally have a very diverse trainer base because we have a very diverse client base. And, you know, I saw this when I was at Merrill, there was always this joke of like, there's an advisor for every client. Like you have like some really wacky advisors and you're like, how does anybody work with that guy? You know, and then you'd meet their oh, clients. Like, there's, there's a, there's a client for every advisor. Yes. Yeah. And you'd meet their client. You're like, okay. You know, and there was always <laughs> like that kind of joke of like, well, did you meet their clients? And you're like, oh, okay, I get it. So that was like a funny joke, but it's true. There is really like every, you know, there is a, a trainer for every client too. And we really, because we have such a diverse client mix, we really want our clients to kind of see and work with the type of trainer they want to work with. And, you know, I love all the trainers. I would work with any of them personally, but, you know, people are specific. They want to work with a woman or they want to work with a woman of color, or they want to work with somebody who understands LGBTQ plus, or, you know, they want to, whatever their thing is, they want to work with. And we want to have that for them because, you know, money's very personal and people's money stories and cultures are very different about money and talking about it. And, you know, we've got Spanish speaking trainers and, you know, we've got just a diverse mix of trainers to meet the needs of the population, which is a very large population of people and a very diverse population of people. So talk to us a little bit more about the, you said that the training program that you built for getting all of your, all of your advisors, all your trainers up to speed. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear more about that. And just like, is this built around like the CFP program, CFP certification? Do you not go that road? Do you not want to go that road? Cause you rather build your own program. Like what does training look like and how do you see it relative to to other industry pathways out there like CFP marks. Yeah, we have our own, you know, proprietary training program we call Trainer Academy. And, you know, I talk about all the ways I could sell and get value for the business. Our training program, I think, is, and we've had large institutions ask us about it. It is game changing as well. So and we've done Trainer Academy, we've done nine iterations of it. So the trainers are we call T one through nine. So like you're in training class one or nine. It's funny because like the, you know, the trainers identify, it's like your freshman class, you know, or your sophomore class. So like the T9ers, you know, there's the T5ers or whatever. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's their, their group. And then we've done nine, including two versions of it virtually because we had two classes that started during the, the pandemic with equal success. So it's a two week boot camp intensive, a number of different things, tests, quizzes, role play, you know, some other secret sauce things. And then after that, clients start working with, a trainer start working with clients and then they're on a 90-day probationary period where they get reviewed. They record their meetings and they get 
viewed by their team leads. And then, you know, and then they get formal 30, 60, 90 day reviews. And then after, you know, 90 day reviews are considered, you know, fully ready to, you know, take on more clients. So they're taking clients along the way. And we, we talk a lot internally about should the training program be longer? Are there things that are, you know, how long should it be before they start taking clients? And I think any advisor knows like every client is different. Like it's so hard to teach all the things all at once because, you know, it's like drinking from the fire hose and it's like, until you start seeing it, you know, it's really hard. So it's really like kind of mentoring along the way as things are, you know, they're uncovering things with clients and and gaining the experience, but it's really the best training is actually doing it. And that's, you know, the bulk of how it works and with a very strong, you know, mentor along the way. We have um, our own like wiki site that is, again, totally unique to us and very game changing as well. I joke, our Slack channel is worth a multiple of, I mean, the amount of things we've seen now, we've worked with over 10,000 clients at this point, the amount of situations we've seen and run into with working with clients, like of all financial shapes and sizes is like, it's so funny because in our Slack, like, you know, a, a trainer will be like, has anyone had an experience with this? And there's always a response, like always, right. <laughs> you know, it's like even some things where I'm like, whoa, I, I mean, you know, like, has anyone had experience with, with the courts doing blah, blah, blah. And somebody's like, yep, go to blah, blah, blah. Like there is, there is a knowledge base that is very robust from the work we've been doing. And so do you even look at programs like CFP certification is the future. Again, not trying to harp on it, but I'm just fascinated that you're on you're on such a different track of what you're building in training for the clients that you serve. Like I'm just wondering if you even see that as part of the picture for the business that you're building. Yeah. So it's funny because a few of our trainers are doing the CFP coursework themselves, like on their own. And they're like, yeah, I don't need most of this. And it's just kind of you know, interesting to know data, but like learning and spending time on the time value of money is just not, you know, when somebody's like, how do I stop spending money on Amazon is just not a thing. And most of our clients, you know, we don't do the investing. We don't give, you know, investment advice, but we give asset allocation guidance and we explain what asset allocation is and explain, you know, investment portfolios to them. So they know what they're doing, but our clients do it on their own. And And that's the other thing, like we're empowering them to do on their own. So, you know, they don't need that kind of knowledge really to work with the clients. That's not the bulk of what clients are looking to get from their relationship with us. I mean, we've got clients with financial advisors and we we love working on a team with an advisor because we're like, you know, we don't need to do the investing or want to do the investing. And we're happy to explain to clients what's going on, you know, be that kind of, and by the way, we're going to help them stop spending their money. So they have more money to invest with you. So I have one client of a 50 plus woman who has an advisor. She started working with me like five years ago because she wanted to buy a house. She was living with her sister and she was sitting on $300,000 of cash. And she had like $160,000 with her Ameriprise advisor. And I knew she didn't need all that cash for the house, but she didn't know what her spending was like. It was like a number of different things. And I was like, and and meanwhile, that portfolio has grown and she's done other things. And I was like, 
and she just now bought the house. So I was like, your Ameriprise advisor is going to be so happy when we send her like $100,000 out of the blue. That she's, I was like, does your Ameriprise advisor know about this cash? She's like, no, I don't want to tell her about it. I was like, okay. <laughs> well, and I'm, I'm struck from the flip side. So you, you, have, you have clients who have assets with traditional advisors, like with an Ameriprise advisor. And, and then they're also paying the financial gym for their financial advice. Yeah. Well, because most advisors, and you know, it's like most advisors want to spend time on, you know, one side of the balance sheet and people don't necessarily feel comfortable sharing some of the other side with the advisor, just like why people didn't want to, my Merrill clients didn't want to come and show their expenses to me. So there is kind of like, we really do play in the building blocks of financial literacy and education and then planning and saving and budgeting and debt management and things like that. And we have clients who have, you know, advisors and the wealth to have advisors, but they also need to know how to spend their money too. I mean, we had a, at a client start recently, just a, a friend over the years that I didn't, you know, she asked me to look at her money and do kind of do a plan for her. She has $40 million dollars. I did not know this. She has four, she has five advisors and I'm like, do any of the advisors know how much money you have? She's like, no. Why did she want me to look at her financial plan? Cause she wanted to know if she was going to run out of money. And I was like, okay. I mean, like, I right, so we, we got a lot of different stuff going on there. <laughs> I, I tell people the problems are the same. The zeros are different. Like it, it doesn't matter how much, you know, money you have, people are still scared of like running out of money or like overspending or like not sure how they're spending their money and kind of want to look at all angles. So yeah. And I did the work for, I was like, I was like pretty much if everything goes wrong, I was like, I, I was like 20 million is your number, which was just a ridiculous plan to kind of do for her. I was like, and you're sitting on 40. So I was like, you are going to be fine. But yeah, that's why. And she's just paying, you know, she's still working with me. <laughs> like, and I'm, and I'm like, and they don't like three of their advisors. And I'm like, you know, you could consolidate, you know, advisors. It's pretty easy with an ACAT form to do that. They're like, yeah, we, I think we're going to. They're like, well, which one did you pick? I was like, I have no idea who these people are. <laughs> like, I don't. I really can't pick one of the five for you. Yeah, You're going to have to make no that idea. decision. Yeah. And then the funniest thing is her husband's probably the smartest person. I was like, he should just manage your portfolio. I mean, he's got some really smart ideas. So, but I, I laugh too, because, you know, I have the other side of the information and there's like a Merrill advisor who has like 2 million of it. And I was like, that guy's probably feeling so good, you know, like $2 million portfolio is good, you know? And I was like, yeah, he's probably, point. yeah, he's probably feeling great. Like, Hey, I'm just glad I got my 2 million, like not going to ask any question. You know, he's just managing his thing. And meanwhile, if he just even tried a little harder, the guy could end up with a lot more. Yeah, he's he's missing the the ten x literally the ten x literally literally. <laughs> so share with us a little bit more just the part of this journey around raising capital, around going for outside dollars, around you know not owning all of the financial gym because now investors own some of it because that's what happens when they exchange cash for for shares. Can you talk to us more about what like what that journey's like? How you think about selling pieces of the business to to get cash, to get capital, to do more of the growth. How has that worked for you? Yeah. I mean, the journey is horrible, Michael. It's horrible. If you just, if anybody wants to know, it's like, if you follow on Twitter, there's 
there's an account that my that I just found out about is VCs congratulating themselves. I think VCs <laughs> congratulates. I think is the name of it. Yeah, VC brags is it's at VC brags, but it's okay. VC, VCs congratulating themselves. There's so much to this that just like feeds my soul that feels very reaffirming about the experience. I tell people I have raised ten million dollars now at this point of investor funds, some from venture capital funds, some from other investors. I've raised 10 million and I've also given birth vaginally and I would give birth vaginally all day long rather than raise money. It is like such a gut-wrenching, horrible experience that, you know, when people come to me to mentor them and they ask my advice about raising money and doing things, I'm like, any way you don't have to raise money is probably the best bet. Because what ha- what it is, and I've you know narrowed it down, is like you raise money and from whatever type of investors, they're like bullish about the business, they like where it's going, whatever. But what happens is for most, the majority of VCs, 90% of VC businesses, back businesses fail. So you know, they only expect 10% to do really well. So what they really want their businesses to do is either take off very quickly and become, you know, something they can brag about that they were a part of or fail pretty quickly because they know it's going to fail. So just like, let it go. But in the interim and during that ride is that it's just never good enough until you have that exit or that failure. It's never good enough because that you're in this limbo point. So you could have your best quarter ever, your best month ever, your best whatever ever. And it's just like, okay, what next? Because you need to still grow like a bajillion percent more if we're going to get our good exit from this. Right. Or or just go the other direction and, and close shop, please. You know, I remember one investor telling me, he's like, I have a, a business that it's just the worst. It's just doing fine. And I hate it. And I was like, you know, a profitable (laughs) business that's just like existing is a good thing in most like areas. But the fact that this guy, you know, cause it's, cause it's probably not going to have an exit at some point and, or he, maybe he'll get some money back and like dividends, you know, or whatever, but that's not what he did invest it for. So it is a powerful thing for, for folks who have never gone down the road with, with venture capital firms. Like you can reach the point where very literally they would rather see you risk the entire business with a very high likelihood of going bankrupt and losing everything yes. if it gives them a shot to have a big exit. Yes. They would They would actually rather see you go bankrupt than never having taken the shot at everything because from their end, they're just assuming 90% of them are going to fail anyway. So you, your bankruptcy is another number to them. Your success is what makes their fund. But obviously the they do that because they get a hundred bets. You you only get one. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty much what you're kind of pushed toward. And then every private company that's going public, I love hearing all the time. People are like, how is Robin going public with all these losses and blah, blah, blah. I was like, that's the VC model. It's like, as long as top line's growing, I mean, you just raise more money and raise more money. And which is just not really sustainable if you can't raise more money and then you're, you know, but it's like almost like that's what they're trying to do is they're trying to get you to that. Either you raise money and that reaffirms their choice or you can't and you're bankrupt. So they're just getting you there quicker by forcing you to kind of spend money and have these big hockey stick grow things and, you know, what have you. And but so what's funny is four years ago is when I raised my first like venture fund money and 
I remember people telling me to not do it. <laughs> and, like, and I was like, well, but you know, we're aligned. Like I want the business to 10X, they want the business to 10X. So like we're aligned. And, you know, now what I'm saying is like the reality of what happens. And I talk to my attorney, my attorney is like my best friend and therapist. And he's just like, he sees it all the time. He's like, you know, he sits in board meetings all the time. He's like, this is like typical Shannon. It's like, cause what happens is you take investor money and it's like a marriage. And then it can get very unhealthy. So when the business isn't doing well, you know, when you're struggling, like we were in the last year, it's like, it's a very uncomfortable place. Those board meetings are very uncomfortable to sit through. And they're just like, well, just fire people. Just do this. Just, I mean, and you're like, well, these are human beings and, you know, they work really hard for the business and, you know, we're trying to support families and, you know, things like that. And that's not something that comes into the board meeting. Do you have that? Not really why they wrote the check for nope. you. Nope. <laughs> and you're like, well, I want to be able to look myself in the mirror every day. I feel like I did the best I could for as many people as I could. And, you know, we talk about this a lot internally. We've been talking about this a lot because the last 16 months, everybody's exhausted. Companies are struggling with employee morale and like there's a great resignation and people are leaving and there's all these things. And, and certainly the last 17, 16 months have been horrific for me as a founder, as a CEO, as like trying to get this company through it. But for me, I always like go back to, you know, what's my why? And like, why do I do this every day? And I do it for our clients. And it's for going back to that first woman who told me I was saving her life is why I do this. And every, we get new clients start the gym every single day. We get new lists. And every time I see that new client list, I just think, thank God we're still here for them. Like, thank God we're doing it. And even one of my clients, a long-term client just sent me a text. She's like, I know this last year has been rough, but never forget how critical and life-saving your work is. Like, I'm like, all right, that gets me. So that's my counterbalance to the VC, you know, investor drama that and the VC Bragg's Twitter account is <laughs> on the other side. <laughs> so in retrospect, would you have done this differently around how you, how you tried to grow the business or is this just the necessary evil to, for you to grow it to where you want to grow it or do what you want to do? You know, I get asked this question a lot, like what would 30 year old Shannon, 40 year old Shannon, three, two year old Shannon say to, I'm 43 now, 43 year old Shannon say to 30 year old Shannon. And I always say, do everything exactly the same, like every single thing, because every single challenge, every single misstep or whatever, HR challenge, investor challenge, whatever we, I learned from it. Like some lessons are a little more painful than others, but we've never made the same mistake twice. So you learn and you get smarter. And I tell my team this all the time. All we can do is get better every day. That's all you can do is like learn from today and let's get better and smarter tomorrow. And that's what you're supposed to do. And for me, you know, we are this year, we are looking at and considering a number of different strategic partnership opportunities. And What's really fascinating is number of companies are interested in talking to us because we provide human advice, which is the exact reason why it was hard for me to raise money four years ago, because all mm -hmm. of the investor money was going to tech. And now there's these big tech companies who have great technology and platforms and data, but they don't have human advice. So it's just ironic. But, you know, I would do exactly the same. We're exactly where we're supposed to be. Like we've done the exact things. For me, at some point there will be you know, an exit or an opportunity 
to exit. And my next chapter is to start the Golden Girls Fund, which will be an early stage VC fund that will invest in female founders and do it differently. So encourage them to build businesses that don't have to massively scale. And we won't have to get paid back like that. We'll use all of the knowledge that we've had in this company to help them with their business. And so it's all valuable. But I, and I do get asked a lot from people for help and, you know, or they're thinking about raising money. And so I can give them my experience and either help them avoid it (laughs) or, you know, help them through it and work through it. There are different places for raising money. There's certain businesses that are more inclined to raise money easier and better than others. And, you know, I now I have, you know, full awareness of that. And so I take all that knowledge and apply it to the next chapter. So what, what surprised you the most about building and scaling the this advice business? Every single founder meeting I've ever been to, if you ask a founder or CEO what, you know, what's their pain point, what keeps them up at night is HR challenges. <laughs> Every single person will say that. And I am one that will totally agree with that. Scaling and hiring individuals and working with individuals. I mean, I, I get why investors want to buy tech companies. <laughs> You'd love to have a business of just robots, you know, uh-huh. but uh, I can see why that why that's appealing to some people. So the HR challenges are, you know, there are a thing. I have a weekly meeting with my head of HR and my a significant other was like, you have a weekly HR meeting? And I was like, yeah. And there's always stuff to talk about. Like always. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So that's one meeting I'd love to be like, hey, to her, like, hey, do we need to meet? We always, there's always something. And and it doesn't have to be like really dramatic, but there's just always something. Because like, especially this last, you know, 17 months, like, you know, there's a lot, people are going through a lot and experiencing things. And how do they interact with each other, the teammates? How do they interact with clients? Like, there's so many different things and there's so little you can control on the human resource side. And I'm, I'm a type eight Enneagram. I like control. And if I'm in control, I feel solidly, you know, secure on what's going to happen. But, you know, when you have other human beings and you have to relinquish control, you, you just learn a lot of lessons. (laughs) So what was the low point for you on this journey? There's been, I think five times now, since I raised money where we have come close to missing payroll and like close, I mean, like by a week or two, a week or two, I think, I think we've been like the close we've been is like two weeks. We almost didn't make payroll five times. We've always made payroll, but there have been five times because of funding challenges and timings and things like that, where you just payroll goes out, you know, for this, this pay, pay period. And you're like, not sure where next one's coming from. Those are tough to get through. <laughs> Those are tough. It always happens. It always, the money seems to always come in and you you do a lot of moving around. It's like a shell game kind of thing to make it happen. But in the five years since I've had employee, I've never missed payrolls, but it's like, it's, there's been some tough times. And just for context, like how, how big is the team overall now? We're around 40 employees now. Yeah, we have trainers and then we've got support team marketing. So that's the mix of it. And that was a really challenging time during the pandemic because you're just like, you have people leave, 
we had to let people go or whatever, but mostly it was the people leaving. And I remember there's just so many times you're like, wow, it's just must be nice that you get to leave. Like I can't go anywhere. <laughs> like, cause if I left 40 families have no income, you know? So that pressure, that weight is, uh, it's really, it's really heavy. It's some, on some days. So what advice would you give younger, newer advisors thinking about coming in the business today? You know, the best advice I give is just like always listening to clients. Don't pre-screen clients. <laughs> I, I really like, you know, just like that Jim Carrey movie, Yes Man, be a yes person to everything and really say yes to everything. Cause any advisor business is a, is you're, you're an entrepreneur at the end of the day, you're building a, a business that's like unique to you with your own unique challenges. And so part of that journey and that experience is like, is uncovering different avenues and things you're supposed to do. And that's what I would say. So what comes next for you? You know, I know you are off, off of coming off of kind of a fresh round of capital unfortunate investor dynamics, mm-hmm. notwithstanding <laughs> as, as discussed. So what comes next for you? We're expanding different products, growing other areas of the gym. So we've now launched courses for people who are into more DIY stuff. We're, we're going to be launching a $35 a month plan for kind of like the new model. So, you know, your trainer on demand, like available at whenever you'd like. And then we're looking at, we're exploring a few different partnership opportunities at the moment. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and just one of the themes that always comes up is the, the word success means very different things to different people. And so, you know, you're going down the, the, the journey of successfully growing the business with all of the pains and tribulations of running an in-person financial gym business in a pandemic. So, you know, you're, you're navigating that on the business end. But I'm I'm wondering, how do you define success for yourself at this point? For me, I feel like success is, I feel it in the success of our clients. So, you know, I went on this journey eight years ago to help other people. And every time I see a client post something on Instagram or Twitter, they send an email about some financial success, they've had some hurdle they've accomplished. It's like, that feels like my success too. And it's like, okay, they were able to do that because I did this thing. And it's like, I get to have all these successes along the way because of that. So their success is my success. I love it. I love it. Which just helps to emphasize that whole transitional moment of the, the Merrill client who didn't even want to go with you on the journey after helping them be deal with being slightly less rich and the and the power of the client who says, you you changed my life. You're saving my life right now. Yeah, that's who I'm here for. That's who, that's who we're here for. Oh, I love it. Well, thank you, Shannon, so much for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com. <laughs>